Thank you, Brent. And I know I speak for Brent when I say, uh, if you have any questions or want to know more about anything he shared or even things he didn't share or alluded to, uh, Brent loves to talk about Jesus. He loves to evangelize and uh, he loves to help people uh, who want to follow Jesus more faithfully. So grab him. That's a, that's a gift that he has. And thankful that you're going to be an elder here, my, my friend. All right, go talk to a bunch of kids. Yeah, he's teaching in the back today. So Romans. So you hear another testimony, the power, the piercing power of Romans, right? You, I love, and we didn't, we didn't correspond together, but did you hear him when his father pulled over the four-wheeler and turned the key off and said, when you get home, your mom's not going to be there? What was he? What was the word? Numb, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for another opportunity to dig deeper in, into the word of God today, and we're looking forward to what you're going to show us, Lord. I pray you would open our eyes to see wonderful, as we sang, how marvelous, how wonderful. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. Help us to marvel at them, Lord. Help us to, with Paul, just erupt into spontaneous praise as we consider your riches, your wisdom, your knowledge, your glory, your plan of redemption that was conceived from all eternity and has been carried out according to that plan flawlessly, Lord supernaturally, sovereignly, in a world of chaos and upheaval, you sit enthroned calmly, serenely, above it all, orchestrating and moving history to its ultimate conclusion. We thank you for that confidence that we have, that truth, that reality. Be with us now as we finish up chapter 11 in Romans. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans 11, we're going to read verses 33 through 36. Those are the four verses we've been trying to plow our way through. And Lord willing, today we're going to finish. I feel like in some ways you already got a sermon just then. That was like a sermon, but not so fast. You get a sermon, all right? That was a testimony. It was a long one. It was a good one. It was a good one. I can say that. Brent's gone. <laughs> no, I love it. I love hearing stories of God's grace and God's faithfulness. Are you there? Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. And this is the very end of the doctrinal section of Romans. I'll say more about that in a minute. Here's what Paul says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, we began talking about this passage. It's been a few weeks ago now. And we began framing it by identifying some dangers that I think we face in, in this culture in 2023, the dangers are, I listed them as three, and look, I know that's an oversimplification. Every preacher gets faced with this dilemma, right? You got to find words to describe what we're swimming in every day, and so I tried my best to pick three that hit everybody, and I've got some good feedback on it, so hopefully it resonates. What are the three dangers we face? One is the danger of being shallow, just staying a mile wide and an inch deep, just swimming in those shallow waters, trivial, trite, superficial, the other is growing cynical, where you're distrustful of everyone and everything. Nothing good has ever happened to you. Nothing good is happening. Nothing good will happen. So you're distrustful. 
And the third, I think it's the greatest, and maybe it captures both of the others, it's being numb. You just feel dead inside, unfeeling. It's the deprivation of sensation. So being shallow, growing cynical, and becoming numb. numb. And Paul counters those three dangers here, I believe, with something that's really deep, something that's deeper than the things that are shaping us into cynical, numb, shallow people. He offers us something deeper, more powerful, that offers more hope and can make you more alive with wonder. So my question to you is, what is deep to you? Is it your debt? <laughs> but in the, hey, listen, all joking aside, some people are so deep in the debt, that's what hijacks their headspace. That's what they think about all the time. How in the world am I going to pay this off? Or is it maybe just cosmic disappointment that you face? Or just perpetual conflict that you're in, relational unresolved conflict? That's what, that's what the word deep really, really means in our society. Like, man, that's deep, that's heavy. There's things that are so heavy, man, they just take us captive and take us to a, a, a dark place and incarcerate us and hold us hostage. And God knows that, and Paul knows that, and so he's offering you something deep and profound, something to awaken you, something to pierce you, to strike you. That's what the word wonder really means. You're wounded by wonder. That's what I believe Paul is seeking to do here. So what is deep to you? What is making you numb, and what are you doing about it? Paul can help with that. There is a documentary. I know. I'm sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Everyone's talking about this. You're like surfing two weeks in a row? Well, bear with me. A buddy of mine who surfs told me about this documentary. He said, dude, this is the most raw, unvarnished, honest documentary I've ever seen about a surfer. And it, and it is, man. It's a great doc. You know, I have to be careful. I'm not saying go watch this. It's raw, which means, you know, surfers are going to be talking surfer lingo. So just, you know, beware. It's about a guy named Kirby who's an Australian and he has devoted his life to this obsession of finding and surfing monster waves. You can see the kind of waves that he surfs there. And that's really dangerous. And the reason he gives for doing this is because it makes him feel alive. Can anybody, you may not surf, but I guarantee you, you want to feel alive, don't you? Does that resonate with anybody? What do you do to feel alive? Don't answer that out loud. Especially if it's illegal or wrong, okay? But this documentary is about him and his brother... Courtney, who is the guy who always pulls him into these big waves on his jet ski. But Kirby's the central character. And facing monsters follows him on his obsessive quest. And he gets injury after injury after injury. One of them, which is catastrophic, and it captures it in the end of the film. So fair warning, you can see. Uh, it's a life-changing injury that he, sus he sustains while surfing because... He's like, look, man, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed, I'm numb, I want to feel alive. The only way I can do that is, is through surfing. It's either this or drugs and alcohol, <laughs> right? So really, this whole film is about replacing one obsession with another, both dangerous, both who takes him, both of them take him to bad places, but he just chooses one over the other. And here's a quote from the movie that I just thought was really interesting. He says this, the ocean is where I go to peace, not to pieces, even though that's true too. He means the ocean is where I go for peace and a place where I belong. It's where I feel free. Without that connection, I don't feel like I'm the person I'm supposed to be. I lose that balance. It's where I feel most alive. Did you hear, did you pick up on the idolatry language in this? 
Let me read that again. It's where I go for peace, the place where I belong. It's where I feel free without it. I don't feel like I'm the person I'm supposed to be. I'm not flourishing. I'm not healthy. I'm not thriving. And it's where I feel the most alive. Man, do you think he's using the ocean to do something that somebody else has already offered to do for him for free that's dangerous in a different way, <laughs> right? And then he doesn't have to go and get another fix, another fix, another fix, uh, rivers of water, you know. Jesus told the woman at the Samaritan well, hey, you drink this water, you'll never get thirsty. You'll never have to go do something risky and dumb again to get a fix or to feel alive. I'll make you feel alive. You'll be free forever. If the sun makes you free, you're free indeed. You know what that means? You're free forever. So maybe you're numb and maybe you're comfortably numb. And Paul wants you to be uncomfortably numb. You should be uncomfortable if that's how you feel because, listen, that's beneath you. That's beneath your dignity and your purpose being a child of God. You're, you're made in His image. God is not numb. So when we're numb, we're not bearing His image accurately and truthfully. Jesus came to, to offer us hope and redemption and restoration to become living, breathing human beings who are functioning the way they're supposed to. They're connected to their Creator and they're connected to the world He put us in. So here's a question, and I know, I talk to people all the time, they're like, yeah, you preachers, man, you just like, you oversell things. Well, listen to this. Tell me if I'm overselling this. Now, I'm going to read this. I wrote this down. I wrote this down for you so I wouldn't get it wrong, okay? What is heavy enough to shape your world? What truth helps you weather critique? Anybody struggle to weather critique? Boy, I do. I don't like it. If you offer me critique, pray for me. I need it. I want it. I welcome it. But man, it's hard. I'm 48, I thought I would get to a place where, the, where I would be like, man, cut me deep, baby. No, I'm not there yet. I'm working on it, okay? Your pastor's working on it. What truth helps you weather critique, endure suffering, resist temptation, face your own flaws? Can you face your flaws? You have them. Do you know what they are? Do you want to know? Ask somebody close to you. You don't want to do that. Why not? <laughs> That's another sermon. Face your own flaws. What motivates you to give generously? He said, yeah, there's the preacher talking about money. I didn't say to the church, but I mean, that's kind of implied, right? <laughs> what, what motivates you to, to give things away? Because God owns everything anyway, right? Or are you stingy and greedy and you hold on to things? Why is that? Because something's captured your heart. What motivates you to love courageously, serve sacrificially, and give yourself entirely to Jesus? What reality, what truth keeps you humble Frees you to serve others with zeal, remain patient under trials, gladly serve your enemies, rejoice in hope, and overcome evil with good. You're like, preacher, you're telling me what you're going to show me today can do that? Do you think I'm overselling this? Because everything I just said is in the very next chapter. Did you know that? That's Romans 12 paraphrased. Everything I just said to you. And, and check this out. I know I may have shared this last week. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Full stop. Pull the, pull the four-wheeler over. <laughs> What's he talking about? Paul's saying, hey, look, therefore, I'm about to tell you a radical lifestyle change. I'm going to give you a lot of commandments. I'm going to give you a path to follow. And I'm going to appeal to you to do it by the mercies of God. What's he talking about? The last 11 chapters. He's been pouring out all these mercies and riches and depths of God. And he's saying, you're going to need that. Remember that. Those 11 chapters, I'm appealing to you based on that to live this way now. And, and here's the way I would say it. And, and this is not a, I didn't come up with this. My friend Larry Kirk, he's the pastor of Christ Community Church. 
We talked about this at one of our networks meetings. He, he talks about the music and the dance. The good news about Jesus' rescue, dying on the cross, raising to new life. The gospel, that's, that's good news. And the gospel calls you and enables you and empowers you through the presence of the Holy Spirit to live a radically different lifestyle, a transformed lifestyle. You agree with that? So the gospel, I would say, is music. It's a truth. It's a reality. It's music. And your new life in Christ, walking in the Spirit, obeying God's commandments, that's the dance. Man, I love talking about this. So there's music and there's dance. Have you guys ever listened to music and maybe you were just, you were just in a grumpy mood? But that music, man, it just, it, I, you know what I'm saying? You couldn't help yourself. You had to move and groove to it. You had to, even if you don't like music. I'm a techno guy. I'm, I'm ashamed of te- Well, no, I'm not. There ain't nothing wrong with techno. It doesn't have any words. That's probably the safest music in the world. But you know what techno music is? It's kind of, I listen to that when I study. Does that give you a bad image of like your past? Because <laughs> I can't listen to music with words when I'm studying. It trips me up. But when I'm listening to techno music, man, and my kids are they're laughing probably because I'm like, I'm, you can't help but move, right? Now, now good music naturally makes you want to move in a good way, not in a wrong way. I know Baptist and dancing, we, uh, in a good way, okay? You, can't, you almost can't help yourself. It's the natural organic response to good, deep, powerful music. And I want you to think about the gospel's good, deep music. The gospel's deep music, guys. It's deep music. And good music leads to the dance. Now, I grew up watching spaghetti westerns. I love watching westerns with my dad. He's watching from home. Hi, dad. I love you. John Wayne, Clint Eastwood. Love it, man. And I remember growing up in a western when the bad guy would look like had the upper hand. He would get a gun and he would shoot the ground at the feet of the good guy. Remember what he would say? He would say the guy's like, what do you want? He goes, I want you to dance. He's like, I ain't doing it. And he's like, and he shoots the ground. He goes, dance, partner. And then the guy's like, he doesn't want to dance, but he has to, right? I feel like, am I wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong. God help me. I feel like some of the Christians I meet, that's their obedience to God. It's like, I don't really want to, but I got to. And, and they feel like God is a cosmic, <laughs> he's like a cosmic cowboy shooting the ground. Dance or else. When the gospel is such sweeter music, man. When, you, when you're appealed to by the light of God's mercies, you want to live this way. You want to please him. And, and besides, it's a better life. It's a much better way of living. So I give you that analogy to tell you this. Paul is offering you some really deep, beautiful music that in the very next chapter, it's going to set your feet to dancing. Okay? But you've got to understand it. You've got to be able to wrap your mind around it and comprehend this music. So that's what this is. This is the song that's going to lead to the dance, and, and Paul is wanting us to really be, be struck with wonder. So, uh, really, really quick review of what we covered last week. We only covered two points. The outline was, uh, yeah, let me pull that outline out. The outline was, we need to be struck by wonder at God's riches, because he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, and then eventually he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, um, and to him, let's see, to him be glory forever, amen. So I divide it up into four, four realities, four truths that can pierce your numb heart and can strike you with wonder, 
and wake you up, make you alive to the reality of who you are in Christ. I mean, that's the whole task of the New Testament, is to help you become what you already are as a Christian. You're in Christ. There's a new reality for you. You have a new identity. And when you understand that, it changes your life. It's transforming. So we need to be awakened, struck by wonder at his riches, by his wisdom, and his knowledge for his glory. And we, we started with riches. And that's just, a, you turn your fa- he turns your face back to chapters 1 through 11. He says, do you realize how incredibly spiritually wealthy you are? Do you realize what you've been given in Christ? You hit the spiritual lottery. You hit the jackpot, right? When I was a kid, we would do odd jobs. And back then in the 80s, people gave you a dollar. That was like a 10 or 5 today, right? And they would give you uh, dollars. And I just remember, man, I would save them and I would hide them because I had siblings, right? And secretly, man, at night when I was by myself and I'd look around and I'd go and I'd get this money out, man. And it was just like I called it a power wad. I would have this big roll of $1 bills. And, you know, years later, I figured out the three substances that are on paper money. And anyway, I would smell it and like even, I would almost want to taste it. Just like, kind of like, man, I felt like Scrooge. I would be in my room, like counting these dollar bills, licking my fingers and think, man, I'm so rich as a kid. I got like 35 of these. (laughs) That's kind of what Paul's wanting you to realize. You know, you know how wealthy, you know what? Christ has done for you? Do you know what the Spirit is doing in you? Do you know the inheritance that's waiting on you? As bad as things may get right here, the political rancor, the economic instability, the, the societal chaos and upheaval, it's, people say, it's getting so bad. Well, not really. You heard Mark talk about the persecuted church. We're not there yet. We're headed that way. As bad as it gets, friends, do you know what's awaiting you? And glory Glory is going to come down and meet you one day and fill you. You will be, C.S. Lewis said this, if you could meet the person that you will one day become in glory right now, if you could meet that person right here now, you would be struck by such wonder you would want to fall down and worship that being as divine. That's your future. Listen, it's, it's as more certain to happen than the sun's going to rise in the morning. That's what the Puritan, I think it was Thomas Watson, he said, you are, more certain to, uh, you are more certain to arise out of your grave and be glorified than you are to get out of bed in the morning. How many of you believe 99% chance you're going to wake up and get out of bed in the morning? Okay. Do you believe that strongly, that you're going to be a glorified, radiant being remade in Christ's image one day and, and be like him? Do you believe that? I think, see, that's the trouble we face. I don't think we all really believe that. Or we would weather critique and face our flaws differently than we do. And we would give a little more generously, knowing that, you know what? That's going to be rewarded. You're not doing it for the reward. But listen, God takes account of all those things. His ledger is flawless. That's why you don't have to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. He keeps account of that. You do it in secret, he rewards you openly one day. That's a rabbit trail. I'm getting, I'm getting off my point here. What was my point? Riches? Yeah, rich. All right, thanks. Uh, <clears throat> so that's his riches. Secondly, by his wisdom. Wisdom is just the ability to deal with a situation. You've got knowledge, which you go to school, you get knowledge, you read books, you listen to lectures, you take notes. But what you need is wisdom. You need experience to know how to take that knowledge and apply it skillfully to this situation, right? God's wisdom, they're, they're so deep and profound. I mean, you heard that in Brent's, even in Brent's testimony. How could God orchestrate all of that? But he did, and you all have a story if you're in Christ. You have your own story. You know about God's wisdom. You've seen it. 
Because of God's wisdom, he devised a plan to rescue fallen men and women like you and me. He devised a plan that we get no credit for at all. And that's beautiful. And here's why that's good news, because you don't have this big to-do list, this, this large or long list of accomplishments to achieve so that, so that God will be at peace with you, as Brent said, right? No, he does it all. That means you can take this message to anyone anywhere in the world, no matter who they are, where the, what side of the tracks they come from, what adversities they face, that doesn't matter because they're going to be in the same condition, whether they're in the heart of the Amazon jungle or whether they're at an Ivy League school studying their PhD, it doesn't matter. They're a piece of clay that has rebelled against their maker and they're at war with God and they need to be reconciled. And there's nothing they can do about it, but God already did everything that they need. That's in the wisdom of God. And that's good news for us, Right? Because every other religion in the world is going to tell you in order to be right with God, in order, to have a sh- in order to have assurance, in order to be rescued and saved, you got to do this. See, every other religion in the world says do. And Christianity says what? Done. It's finished. He paid it all. So his riches, his wisdom, here's the next thing. How am I doing? We're doing all right. Not everybody said <laughs> Third, his knowledge. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, listen, this is really good news. Lord, help me to communicate this. God knows everything. There are no divine surprises. How often are you surprised at your life? (laughs) I'm sorry, I can't help but look at you guys. (laughs) Hey, look, seriously, did your morning go the way you planned it to? How many people have had the perfect morning? I mean, perfect would be just how I want it, just the way I planned it. How many people have had the perfect morning? No conflict, no arguments, no flat tires, no empty gas tanks, no, no conflict in the, in, on the ride over. You, didn't, you woke up feeling great and excited to come to church and worship. You, you memorized the passage we were going to preach on just so you'd know it, right? I mean, that's my perfect morning, right? Never goes that way. Do you know that God never learns anything? His knowledge is complete and it's perfect. He knows everything about your entire life. Why is that good news? Because we, we're played with what ifs, aren't we? I mean, I love, I love Jesus. He loves me. I'm following him. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And, but what if? Do you know what this does? This knowledge, the, the, the reality of God's, the depth of his knowledge, it turns what ifs into even ifs. Now, here's an illustration. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, look, they're going to come, and they're going to take me. I'm going to be delivered. That word delivered means I'm going to be judged, and I'm going to be handed over for judgment. They're going to deliver me, and I'm going to die. And you're all going to, you're, they're going to arrest me, and you're, gonna, you're all going to scatter. And he quotes the Old Testament. The shepherd is taken, and, and the sheep scatter, right? And all the apostles start, no, 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 no. We'll never, we'll never do that. We'll never betray you. We'll never desert you or abandon you. But Peter is very adamant. You remember this? Oh, Peter, man, he puts his, it's, he's the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. And he says, hey, listen, Lord, even if everyone else abandons you, I will never do it. I'll go even into death. So he, he says, you're wrong. He basically says, Jesus, you're wrong, and I'm better than them. And that will never happen to us because I'm for you. I'll die for you. And then Jesus says this. He says two things. Number one, he says, you'll die for me? He basically says, you won't even live for me, Peter. He says, before the rooster crows tonight, tonight, you will have denied me three times. Three times. And then he says this. This is so powerful. 
He says, Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Now, if you were Peter and you heard Jesus say, Satan came to me and he demanded to have you so that he could sift. You know what it means to sift somebody? Back then, they would throw the wheat up in the air and it would separate it. The chafe and the wheat, the chafe would blow away and the good grain, the wheat would land in the bow and then you could make bread and flour. He says, Satan wants to separate you from your faith. He wants to tear you to pieces. You would hope that Jesus would say, but don't worry, Peter. I told him, nope, uh uh-uh, you can't have Peter. He didn't say that. You know what Jesus said? He said, Satan demanded you to have you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. You know what Jesus is basically saying? Satan wants you, and I said, have at it. He's yours. But, Peter, I've prayed for you. You know what Jesus is saying? Peter, I know everything about not only this night, but the rest of your life. And I know this is going to be a cosmic failure and betrayal on your, on your part. You're so proud. You're so filled with pride, and you're overconfident that you need this. You're going to be one of the main leaders in this church. You're going to preach on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people are going to com- be converted. But you're not ready, Peter. i got to train you. You need to sense how corrupt your heart is. So Satan asked for you, but you know what? Satan's going to fulfill my purpose. He's going to strengthen you. This is going to be one of the greatest defeats in your life, but one of the greatest victories because I've prayed for you, and you're going to overcome it. And you're, gonna, and you're gonna come back and you're gonna strengthen. Not only these disciples, how many people have been strengthened by Peter's return? I have been. And you know, God knows you, he knows, <laughs> he knows your life too. He knows the what if in your life. What have you done? What will you do? God knows that. And listen, it's not hijacking his plan for you. You see, guys, this theology is practical theology. This is the stuff we need to be reminded of. You know, when you watch when you watch sport, I mean, I played football in high school. Uh, it wasn't serious enough back then at the, to, to see what happens at the collegiate level. You know, coaches on the sidelines, they have their clipboard and they're hiding their, their mouth when they're, when they're communicating the next play to, to the players. Have you seen that? You know why they do that? Because <laughs> people are actually reading their lips and, and talking in an earpiece to the other coach. I just always think, man, this is... This is so serious. They have to like hide their play so the, other, so the opponent doesn't know because they're going to run a trick play and it's going to hijack the, they're going to call it an automobile. I just think, man, this is probably a terrible analogy, but I just think God knows everything. There's no tricks. There's no surprises. He knows the game. He knows the outcome. That's assurance. That should be assurance for us. I hope that it is for you. God knows that there is a a very subtle, clever, diabolical enemy named Satan. He knows all about Satan. He knows all about his schemes. He knows all about all the other enemies that want to resist his plan and sabotage your life. He knows all that. There's no surprises. God knows it all, and God sees it all. And I think in our, in our life all the time, we're, we're confronted by things that would have been different had we known. I think of the people that bought that dream property that's beachfront in Fort Myers, Right before Hurricane Inn came. You know what I'm saying? Does that happen to you? You found this perfect car, man, on Craigslist. And you bought it. And now you want to get a tattoo that says check engine on your shoulder. Because that's the... (laughs) That thing throws codes every week, right? It's like if we would have only known, we would have done things differently. Listen, what if you did know, though? What if you did know and you were holy and sovereign? Well, that's the situation with God. He knows all these things. There's no accident. I don't believe in accidents. 
I mean, I do. I don't, when somebody says there was an accident, somebody was injured, I go, it wasn't an accident. What I'm saying is, I don't believe in fate. I don't believe in chance. I don't believe in serendipity. I don't believe any of that stuff. Because I don't believe in luck either. Because the Bible says there is a sovereign God who has perfect knowledge from the beginning all the way to the end. And it says, and I think John 13, and having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. Because he already knew all the things they would do. He knows the, the, anyways. He has perfect knowledge. He who began the good work in you will complete it. That is assurance. Okay, for his glory. Man, we're going to finish today, I think. It would be a miracle. For his glory, verse 36. And I know I'm skipping some things. I'll come back to them, Lord willing. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Do you know what the word glory means? It means heavy. In the Old Testament, the word glory was kavod, and it meant heavy. It meant weighty. It meant deep. And in the New Testament, there's a similar sense. It's, it's doxa, like doxology, like praise. But it, the idea to a Hebrew would, would be glory means how heavy a thing is. And what he's saying in this verse is, consider, consider God. From him, through him, and to him are all things. He is at the center. He's, he's, he's the source. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the heir of all things. There's like no part of this created order that God made, visible or invisible, that his presence doesn't just permeate. And that's, that's heavy. That's good news for us. And what I said in the very beginning stands true. There's something heavy to you that is giving weight and meaning to your life. I, an illustration would be an illustration would be a sailboat, okay? Do you guys know what keeps sailboats from toppling over? You're like the buoyancy. Like, yeah, the, yes, and there's something in the very bottom of the keel, and you can't see it. You can't see it from on the top. Do you know what it is? My daughter helped me make this. Thank you, Kirsten. You know, that's the ballast. The keel's the thing above that. The ballast is like the, the weight. It looks golden there. Uh, it's usually a heavy metal like lead or bronze. And it's a weight, it's something that's heavy enough to, to anchor and secure that, that boat. It pulls it down just enough so it doesn't topple it over, but it doesn't sink it. Why is that important, man? If, you're, if, if you were a sailboat, why is it important that there's something weighty that, that stabilizes you? Because listen, if you're a boat, this is not your life. You're not sailing through smooth, tranquil, serene waters, are you? This is. And if you don't have the right thing, if you don't have the right type of ballast, that is, if you got feathers in your ballast, if you're like the type of superficial, shallow, listen, a storm, the first storm that comes along is going to topple you, capsize you, buddy, and you're going to sink. It's true. Because storms come. Chronic sickness. Cosmic disappointment. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the future. Or bitterness that comes with disappointment and disillusionment. Resentment, bitterness, hatred, hostility, deep, dark depression, crippling anxiety. Anybody ever struggle with those things? Those are storms, man. And they come. Jesus said, in this life you will face much tribulation. That's a promise. It's not a maybe. It's if you're a Christian, I mean, Paul said it this way. Oh, man, senior moment. 
What did Paul say? <laughs> if, if you follow God in this life, you will suffer persecution. Something to that effect. It's, and, and the word there is like a, the word for grapes. Thlipsis. It means it's the word used to describe squashing grapes in a vat so that grape juice fall. You're going to be in a vice, so to speak. There's storms, there's trouble, there's affliction, there's adversity coming, and you better be anchored. And that's what Paul is giving us here. He's giving you and I something that's going to anchor our hearts so that when the storms come, man, we're okay. I mean, Paul said we're cast down, but we're what? I ask you because I forgot. It says something good. We're cast down, but we're not in despair. Isn't that the paradox of the Christian life? We're cast down, but we're not undone. We're hopeful, man. We know what our future is. So what have you placed at the center of your life that is heavy and that is deep, the thing that is anchoring and stabilizing you? Or is it something that's going to capsize you and cause you to blow away? Jesus is the source. He owns everything from him. Psalm 50, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, if, if you were an Israelite, that would be more meaningful to you than if you were just a Floridian. You're like, he owns the cattle. Well, he owns the hills and the cattle, and he owns the milk they produce and the beef and the restaurants that sell them. And <laughs> He owns everything that you, that you have. He's the source from him. But he also sustains it all from him and through him. You know, he sustains you. Do you know the Bible says that if God's breath, you know, he breathed life into the nostrils of man in the garden, and he breathed, and he gives life to every living thing. Do you know the Bible says in the book of Job somewhere that if his breath returned to him, everything would unravel? You ever think about that? All these scientists uh, with really fancy degrees and long letters after their degree they accomplished, they can't really explain that. I think, have, have they called it like the God particle mat or something like that? But do you know if what sustains everything? I mean, we know what sustains toys, batteries. What about an, an, an animal or a human being? What makes them really tick? If God's breath returned to him, we would unravel. The whole world would. And in the book of Revelation, that's another sermon for another day, but it seems like something that is restraining and keeping order in the world is removed. Some people debate, what is that? Is that God's Holy Spirit? Is it the church? Is it Christians? What is it? Or is it his word? Yeah. But it's like, society is going to unravel one day. God is keeping, even people that are his enemies. He, he gave us fresh oxygen and made our heart beat when we were enemies. Isn't that amazing? He sustains it all and he's going to receive it all back. It's all from him, through him, and it's going to go right back to him. He's going to receive the kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Jesus is going to present the kingdom to his father one day and say, here's the, the, the redeemed people that I'm giving back to you. It's amazing. Okay. I'm finishing now. This is the last part. <laughs> Somebody said, oh, <laughs> do you mean it? I don't know. Maybe not. I'm going to try, though. He, sa he says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And that word judgments, it just means his decisions, his actions in history. They're unsearchable. You can't fully comprehend or fathom them. Can you? Can you fathom God's actions throughout history and his decisions, the way the world has gone, believing that God is sovereign over, over all that, does it make sense to you? And then it also says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Now, this is the one I really want to focus on. How, uns how inscrutable are his ways? And that word, just nerd out for a minute here, let me be a geek. The word inscrutable, it's a hunter term. And it means 
how you track an animal. Some of you guys hunt archery, you shoot an animal uh, with a bow and arrow, and it's wounded, and it leaves a trail for you to find it, like a bloody paw print or hoof print or whatever. And you're able to track and find that maybe it's snowed on the mountain, so it makes it easier. And you track him, and you find, yeah, there he is, and now I'm going to eat him. That's a hunter term, and it means this. God's, you can't trace God's paths. It just defies human explanation and, and, and human ingenuity. It defies it. I mean, think about, think about this. Would you have allowed evil into your perfect creation? Would you tolerate the devil? Seriously, if Satan is alive today, if God created the devil when he wasn't a devil, he was a perfect angel, some theologians believe, he was the, he was the holy cherub up there with Michael the archangel, and he was in char- charge of the choir because of some passages in Ezekiel. They believe he was the, 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 the top of God's created order that Lucifer was, the shining one. And then he rebelled and he fell and he became evil. Now, I want to pose this question to you. If you were God and the devil fell and then you've got this perfect created man and woman and here comes the devil wanting to tempt them, what would you do if you were God? You'd probably do the same thing that I would think I would do, right? I'd take the devil and be like, how far do you think I can kick him? Right? I mean, can God kill the devil? You do believe he can kill the devil, don't you? Whenever he wants, and he will one day. But for now, he tolerates Satan. And not only, if, if, if you have a family and there's this menacing, man, I'm, I'm trying, I should have wrote this out. Uh, there's an enemy present in your house, in your family. You know that he's there. You know he hates your family. He wants to destroy them. He wants to tempt them. He wants to rob, destroy, kill, and steal. And would you tolerate leaving him in your house? I wouldn't. God does that every day. Why? Why does he do that? How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? I don't know why. I know this. God could end it whenever he wants, and he will. One day, the Bible says, in fact, the end of Romans says, he will soon crush Satan under his feet. That woke a couple of you up. Soon, the Bible says, very soon, God is going to squash Satan, just like the prophecy in Genesis 3. He's going to be the head crusher, the Messiah, is going to finish the job he came and started, right? But not yet. Until then, God uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. He does it all the time. He let him do what he did to Job. Anybody ever been encouraged by Job's story? Man, it, it stunk to be Job. But I'm grateful that God allowed Satan to do that to Job because that story has so encouraged me. And just tolerating evil and suffering in the world, would you do that? Why does God do that? Why does God allow his children to be persecuted? We heard last week the persecuted church and places in the world where Christians right now, right now, they're being slaughtered for believing what we believe. Why does God allow that to happen, man? I don't know, but I know this. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and where persecution is happening, Christianity is spreading like wildfire, and they can't stop it. Blows my mind. Would you do things the way God did them? Would you let your people be persecuted for for 400 years under a, a dominant world empire, under a cruel taskmasters like Pharaoh and his henchmen? Would you allow that? God does, man, I've been reading in the Old Testament this week, just some of the crazy things that God did. It's like he allows his children to be persecuted and and hurt, and it looks like the enemy has the upper hand, 
And then there's a shepherd who just lobs the head off of the enemy, right? Or there's an angel. I was reading the other night. I think it's 2 Kings 19 or 1 Kings 19. The Assyrian army, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, comes. And he wags his finger at Hezekiah, who's huddled in Jerusalem. He's destroyed all, all the cities in Samaria and all the surrounding pagan empires. He's crushed them. Assyria was a dominant world empire. And he comes marching up to Jerusalem. And he says, hey, Hezekiah... I'm about to take you out, buddy. I'm about to take you out. Look at mighty Assyria. Have you ever seen an army like this? Now, Hezekiah, and he said this. It's a speech. He said, Hezekiah is going to tell all you Hebrews to trust in God. But don't be deceived. Has God delivered any of these other empires that, I've, that I had the heads of their leaders on a stake? Don't be deceived by it. And Hezekiah runs to Isaiah the prophet. And he says, Isaiah, everything he says is true. Please help us. You remember the story? You can't make this stuff up. Isaiah said, thus says the Lord, don't worry about Assyria. I'll take care of them. Remember what happens that night? An angel of the Lord went out in the ranks of soldiers in Assyria, and he destroyed 186,000 soldiers in one night. You know that image you get of like chubby little angels on Hallmark cards? I wouldn't want to meet that angel and be on the wrong side of the war, would you? God, how many ways can God take out an enemy, man? It's just staggering to me. I would have never let the army of Assyria get there. I would have been worried about Hezekiah. You're going to make him anxious. But God did that so we can laugh about it and say, how amazing is God? How inscrutable are his ways? I mean, anybody ever heard of Johnny Erickson Tata in here? <laughs> she is an amazing Christian. Uh, am I saying it right? Quadriplegic, right? So she's a teenager, she went to the ocean to swim, she dove into shallow waters, broke her spine, almost drowned. Another story about God's sovereignty, her sister was walking away and a crab pinched her sister's toe and she went out and turned around and saw Johnny Erickson Tata floating face down, drowning, and she wouldn't have seen Johnny Erickson Tata if she hadn't have dyed her hair bright blonde the day before. Just so, the sovereignty of God's amazing. But anyway, teenage girl, whole life in front of her, paralyzed from the neck down. And she thinks her life is over. She's suicidal. She goes into a deep, dark depression, but then she meets Jesus. And he completely turns her life around and rescues her. And she gets to writing, man. She's an amazing Christian author. And she's an artist. And she starts a wheelchair ministry. And she's, her story of redemption has encouraged scores of people. Would you have done that if you were God? You're like, how am I going to turn the world upside down? Paralysis. What about your life? Has God worked in your life the way that you thought he would or should? You got to trust him. He knows what he's doing. And here's the final thing, and I promise. I'm going to close with this. <laughs> I'm landing the plane. Consider Jesus. You were God, and you're the depths of your wisdom and your knowledge, how inscrutable are your ways? What are you going to do about this problem of sin and rebellion and men and women who are alienated? What are you going to do? He sends his own son, Jesus Christ. So here's God, and God's going to become a man, and he's going to come to the earth. How would you do it? I mean, I'd do it with blazing trumpets. I would arrive on the front uh, porch palace of Rome, right? With a sword of justice? No. In humility, in weakness, Jesus is born basically in abject poverty in a little tiny village hardly anybody had heard of. Nobody even goes to see his birth, you know? 
the three wise men come and they're like, hey, where's Jesus? We heard a prophecy. They're like, yeah, third, third house on the left. They're like, are you going? No. Shepherds, you know, we're coming up on Christmas. Shepherds were, were given at the bottom of the social class ladder. He was born in a stable, not in a palace, not in a temple. He wasn't some erudite, academically trained rabbi. He became a rabbi, right? But he wasn't, a, he wasn't a, what you would expect, right? He didn't go to these elite schools to be trained. He, his knowledge was from God, right? He was a carpenter's son. And then how are you going to rescue the world? He did it in humiliation and in weakness and through suffering. Find me another religion where God suffers and dies and comes back to life. You're going to find it. How unsearchable are your, how inscrutable are your ways and unsearchable your judgments, right? It's pretty amazing, amazing when you think about it. And that's why the last, one of the last things Paul says is this. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? You ever gave God the wisdom he needed because he had some blind spots? <laughs> and here's the big one. Or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? That's where we think, God, I'm, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to clean my life up. I remember saying that as a teenager. Like, God, I know you and I are at odds, kind of like with Brent, but I'm going to make this right. I'm going to do better. You ever do that? You make a deal with God. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to clean my life up. And that lasted about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right? I made a thorough mess of my life. And it wasn't until I was 22 that I came to the end of myself. Who's given to God that it might be repaid to him? Listen, salvation is not God paying you back. You're indebted to him, right? But thank God he doesn't hold that over your head when you're a Christian. He paid it all. He was glad to do it. Beyond being able to give God something, we, we were rebels. We were enemies. We took from him. We stole. We stole his glory. We're like the kid that's sitting in his father's lap slapping his face, right? And God condescended. He came and he, he became a man. He became our substitute. He took what we deserved. The wages of sin is what? Death. Jesus took our death. He was the sacrificial lamb. And he gives us eternal life. He became something ugly so that we could become something beautiful. Listen, Jesus was not numb on that cross says, for the joy set before him, he cried out in pain. I think it would drive any of us crazy to actually see the crucifixion, even from the physical standpoint. But if we could tap into spiritually what was happening, God the Son from all eternity had been in perfect fellowship with the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And for one moment in time, that fellowship was broken. That's why he didn't say, my Father, my Father. No, he had no Father on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first and last time in eternity... Jesus the Son had fellowship with his Father broken. That's what our sin deserves. He did that for you and he did it for me. Have you turned from your sin and trust? Do you trust him yet? Man, he has the best possible gift to give you. New life, freedom, identity, purpose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day, for these truths. We're grateful for them. I pray that... that this message is, is clear, it's powerful, it's understandable. Lord, we could never, we could talk all day and never do justice. Just scratch the surface of the depths of your wisdom and your knowledge and your riches and your glory. You are a glorious God and you, you don't give that glory to another, Lord, but in a sense you share it with us because you're going to glorify us one day. 
We wait, we long for that day, Lord. Forgive us for stealing your glory. Forgive us for putting ourselves or others or some other created material thing at the center of our universe. I pray that the ballast, the heavy thing, the profound thing, the deep thing would be you, your glory, your son, his honor, his salvation, the good news of the gospel. May it reach our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen, this is the time of our service when we have our Selah song. It's a song of reflection. It's for you to sit and think and ponder and chew on what you heard. We have a prayer team at the back. If you'd like to go and talk to one of us about anything you've heard today or anything on your heart and mind, we'd love to connect with you or you can fill out the physical connect card. Or if you have any questions you'll hear in the announcements later, you can stop by the connect center and get your questions answered. But before we sing that Selah song, just real quick, just some housekeeping things. At the very end of this service, we're going to give everyone five minutes. When the last announcement is given and we do our charge, we're going to give you five minutes and we're going to cut the live stream and then Steve, one of our elders, is going to come and he's going to give a financial update to our church. Now, there's a few things we want to do before 2023 closes out. One of them is we want to install the new elders that have been nominated and we've been training and meeting. Another thing is what our bylaws call for. Every year, we're supposed to affirm. I said affirm, affirm. We're supposed to affirm a budget. And we're going to do that at another pre-announced time. We want to give you time to to know what's going to happen before 2023. Because our elders right now and our staff, we're proposing a budget. We're we're trying to reach an agreement on that. We're not arguing. It just takes time to do it. Uh, Today is just a financial update. It's letting you know what's the current status of our finances At another meeting, we're going to do a church affirmation where you get to actually, if you're a member, it's another incentive to become a member, right? So you can participate in that meeting. You can affirm the budget, uh, and then we'll also do uh, the installation for the elders. But the meeting for just the financial update is going to follow today. Just wanted to let you know so that you wouldn't think, why aren't we affirming uh, the budget? Well, that's at another date. We're going to do that. We want to follow our bylaws in that way. So... We can do our Selah song now. You, you come, let me pray, and uh, we'll finish our service. Lord, thank you again for this time together. I pray that you would move in the hearts of all of us here. Open our eyes even more widely than the things we've talked about. Help us in our own mind to trace out your riches, your wisdom, how inscrutable your ways are. Help us to, to just ponder and consider our life and how you have always been there, Lord. Even before we knew you, you knew us. And you were guiding our lives, Lord. You were watching over us in ways that that are just defy our understanding. And we thank you for that, Lord. Help us to give ourselves more fully and completely to you today. And I pray that you would move in the heart, especially if anybody who doesn't know you. May today be the day, Lord. They do what Brent talked about. They, They surrender themselves to you and want to be reconciled to you and repent of their sin and trust you and ask for forgiveness. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.